Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, we'll be talking about Jack London's Call of the Wild. This is a fitting follow-up to Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, insofar as Guy Montag, the main character of that book, finds himself out in the wild after civilization has been destroyed. So it's up to us to make an inquiry into what the wild is. What does it mean to be outside of civilization, to be outside of law? Um, so Call of the Wild will help us do that. To begin with, we'll look at Buck's origins as a very friendly, domesticated dog. Then we will look at his life out in the wild as he learns what the law of club and fang is. Finally, then, we'll consider the possibilities, or if it is possible, to synthesize the virtues of civilization with the virtues of the wild. Before we get to that, or those three parts, I'll just offer a few preliminary thoughts. So here are those. When I first picked up Call of the Wild, I found myself highly skeptical that I would enjoy it, much less learn from it. Much to my delight, I was proven wrong on both counts. Not only is the book, book riveting, but it also helps its readers starkly clarify some of the trade-offs they have to make if they wish to be civilized. The book follows the dog Buck, a mix between a St. Bernard and Scotch Shepherd dog. Buck is a domesticated dog enjoying a leisurely life in sunny Santa Clara, California, uh, what he calls the Southland, on a large estate owned by his master, Judge Miller. He is, after, we don't see him very long in this setting. Uh, he is stolen and sold into slog, <laughs> sled dog slavery up at what Buck calls the Northland, but which we might call Northwestern Canada. His life as a sled dog eventually sees him make a full return to the wild and uncivilized world. As far as I can tell, the book uses Buck's domestication and triumphant return to his primordial ancestor's way of life as a way to think through the vices that attend all civilized life as such in greater or lesser degrees. Now, it is not as if London is exhorting all readers to simply take off their shirts and return to some kind of romanticized Teutonic past. He is not at all insensitive to the distinctive virtues and pleasures that attend civilized life at its peak. And we will examine the moments where he points these things out. But he does his utmost to attractively present a kind of purified form of primordial or wild or barbaric life at its peak, a brotherhood out in the forest imposing its will on others as it extends its strength and tests its increasingly powerful capacities in whatever space it wishes, and doing so in such a way as to become the stuff of legend to the human beings who encounter them. London forces the soft-handed, polite, and respectable civilized men to face up to what they lose by being civilized, and so also compels those who are civilized to try and articulate why the goods that attend civilization compensate for that loss and some. With those introductory thoughts in hand, we will turn to a brief account of Buck's initial life in Santa Clara. Then we will turn to key passages that show Buck's education in what the book calls the law of club and fang. This law turns out to be a kind of re-evaluation of values that turns civilized virtues on their head. Civilization and the wild turn out to select for very different kinds of psychological or physiological types. Put another way, the laws of the city aim for an entirely different outcome than do the laws of club and fang. So we can see, so to speak, the citizens of both different regimes and how they turn out um, and compare them to one another. 
Finally, we will look at London's thoughts on the possibility of synthesizing the virtues of civilization in the wild when Buck meets his final owner and the only person he has ever loved in the form of John Thornton as they seek adventure and treasure in the wilds of the Yukon. All right, so let's take a look at part one, where we consider Buck uh, and his origins and where he grew up. So Buck grows up in relative luxury, overseeing much of his master, John Miller's property. <clears throat> Buck sees himself as a kind of king of the realm and carries himself with the dignity befitting a king. He sometimes accompanies the judge's son on short hunting trips on his own land, and this is the closest that Buck ever gets to anything like danger in his early life. This quotation sums up his time. Buck weighed 140 pounds, to which was added the dignity that comes of good living and universal respect, which enabled him to carry himself in right royal fashion. During the four years since his puppyhood, he had lived the life of a sated aristocrat. He had a fine pride in himself, was ever a trifle egotistical, as country gentlemen sometimes become because of their ins insular situation. But he had saved himself by not becoming a mere pampered house dog. Hunting and kindred outdoor delights had kept down the fat and hardened his muscles. End quote. This comfortable life habituates Buck to be too trusting of others. Having only ever met friends, he doesn't seem to think he can really meet any real enemies. He spent enough time undertaking physical exercises to be strong. But as we will see when he gets to the wild, his exercises have been mere simulations of the wild um, on easy mode, to use a bad metaphor. His good-natured trust almost proves to be his undoing, as an employee of the judge, Manuel, ends up with huge gambling debts that he owes to the Chinese lottery. He ends up stealing Buck to sell him. Because no one has ever dared to harm Buck, Buck allows Manuel to put a rope around his neck even though it threatens his dignity. This reminds us then that we have to watch out for when situations occur that mm, we have some sort of sense are making us deny our own dignity. And we have to realize that, that self-assertion is a requirement of protecting and maintaining and establishing whatever dignity might be possible for us in this life. We have to be careful to make sure that the small in indignities done to us don't eventually render us slaves. A sort of funny aside to add to this is that there was a recent movie made about Call of the, Wheel, uh, Call of the Wild that features Harrison Ford. And when they present Buck at the beginning of the movie, they present him as a kind of slovenly idiot who is a kind of a bore and who just is sliding around, annoying everybody. Um, but he is a kind of way too pampered dog in the presentation of the movie which sort of also shows how hard it is for the modern mind to try to think through and accept what aristocracy is or what it orients itself to. That is to say, it takes a serious expansion of the moral imagination to think through um, the good things that the aristocracy brings instead of just focusing on something like the arbitrary character of it. But the book does not dwell too long on Buck's aristocratic upbringing, so neither will we dwell too long on it. So let's turn to part two, uh, our longest part, the law of club and fang. So Buck is sold into sled dog slavery up north. We can never forget that he is not the kind of breed of dog that belongs up north when we consider his education and success. Now, the language of teaching and learning lessons is used explicitly throughout the chapter that has the title, the law of club and fang. 
This education is bestowed in small ways and in spectacular ways. In small ways, it happens through being whipped and being bit by dogs for making any kind of mistake on the trail, no matter how small. But let's take a look at the spectacular lessons that Buck receives in the law of Club and Fang. Um, Buck's first spectacular lesson comes in the form of the man in the red sweater, whom Buck never forgets. Buck is released from his wooden prison and lunges full length at this man about a dozen times. Each time, he is struck down by crushing blows from the man's club. Buck's full body lunges leave him overexposed, and in the course of this battle, he never recalibrates or adjusts his strategy. Just dive after dive, at first with greater ferocity each time, and then eventually he wilts. I almost wonder if his manner of fighting is partially conditioned by his aristocratic upbringing, insofar as he overexposes his dog or overexposes his body as if he's trying to fight in the most noble way possible. That is to say, if nobility has something to do with self-sacrifice, he doesn't want to try to, you know, attack and then back away or fight in a way that conceals his body from pain. Rather, he wants to try to win the battle all at once while at the same time risking himself um, in a big way. Now, however this may be, his way of fighting or his way of trying to fight this man is contrasted by London um, with the very first real dogfight that Buck sees. Quote, it was the wolf manner of fighting to strike and leap away. End quote. In this way, we see that the wolf fights in a manner that is more cunning than Buck was accustomed to, whereas Buck nobly or foolishly lunged in a way that exposed his entire body to punishment. These huskies slash and immediately jump to protect themselves. The most brutal part of this wolfish fighting is that any dog that winds up on the ground is completely destroyed and cannibalized by the other dogs. Buck witnessed a friend named Curly suffer this fate, quote, so that was the way. No fair play. Once down, that was the end of you, uh, unquote. Now, rather than rehash all of the events of the story that illustrate the law of Club and Fang, we'll consider a few quotations that help bring out the disposition and virtues that are fostered by this law, as well as the peak of primordial excellence that it points its practitioners to. One of Buck's early sled compatriots is named Dave, and Dave, quote, asked nothing, gave nothing, and expected nothing, end quote. At first, then, friendship is not available under the law of club and fang, for friends give freely and from time to time you know, might expect goods to come from their friendships. Further, ordinary virtues are turned on their heads. Under the harsh conditions of the Yukon, generosity or liberality is the height of foolishness and a debilitating vice. The thief who can steal extra food from the humans without getting caught is the good man. As the narrator says, quote, this first theft marked Buck as fit to survive in the hostile Northland environment. It marked his adaptability, his capacity to adjust himself to changing conditions, the lack of which would have meant swift and terrible death. It marked further decay or going to pieces of his moral nature, a vain thing and a handicap in the ruthless struggle for existence. End quote. We notice two different valences in these descriptions here of Buck's moral nature. The first says that his moral nature has decayed. In order to say that his moral nature has decayed, we have to say that we're looking at his moral nature from the perspective 
or standpoint of civilization, which would judge this development as depravity. But in the description, we see an alternative valence or standard of judgment in the quotation, namely the going to pieces of his moral nature. That description sounds more value neutral or descriptive and non-judgmental. The narrator thus alerts us to two competing standards of judgment, that of civilization and that of the wild. It should be noted, as we will soon see, that as Buck increases in strength over the course of the book, he does become willing to stick his neck out to help those who are dear to him. Which is to say, while the wild or the law of Club and Fang encourages its students to revalue certain morals, it does not eradicate the moral sense as such, or does not make it impossible to care for others and to risk great harm in order to protect them. Um, the protection must happen on a different basis or standard, though. So let's try to think about what that standard might be. The wild points to a different, we might almost say Nietzschean footing for evaluating action. What kind of action is life-affirming? Or what can we do that contributes to us feeling more fully alive and capable of reaching the peak of our natural capacities? In other words, life or vitality seems to become the standard rather than truth or justice. Let me read at length one of the most lyrical passages that brings out this kind of standard. This passage is absolutely incredible. I'm going to um, type out the passage in full and post it uh, on the substack if you'd like to read it for yourself instead of just listen to it. All right, so here it is. All that stirring of old instincts, which at stated periods drives men out from the sounding cities to forest and plain to kill things by chemically propelled leaden pellets, the bloodlust, the joy to kill, all this was Buck's only it was infinitely more intimate. He was ranging at the head of the pack, running the wild thing down, the living meat, to kill with his own teeth and wash his muzzle to the eyes in warm blood. And here's, oh man, here's where it gets especially good. So now I'm, I'm quoting again. And this is, the passage happens in the context of Buck chasing a rabbit. Many other dogs are also chasing the rabbit. Uh, and shortly after this, Buck will have to fight his main rival Spitz in a battle to the death. But here's this incredible description that happens before that fight. So back to the book. There is an ecstasy that marks the summit of life and beyond which life cannot rise. And such is the paradox of living. This, this ecstasy comes when one is most alive. And it comes as a complete forgetfulness that one is alive. This ecstasy. This forgetfulness of living comes to the artist, caught up and out of himself in a sheet of flame. It comes to the soldier, war-mad on a stricken field and refusing quarter. And it came to Buck, leading the pack, sounding the old wolf cry, straining after the food that was alive and that fled swiftly before him through the moonlight. He was sounding the deeps of his nature and of the parts of his nature that were deeper than he going back into the womb of time. He was mastered by the sheer surging of life, the tidal wave of being, the perfect joy of each separate muscle, joint, and sinew, in that it was everything that was not death, that it was a glow and rampant, expressing itself in movement, flying exultantly under the stars and over the face of dead matter that did not move. There is a tremendous amount that we could say about this passage. We could pick it apart line by line and try to put each part in our own words. If, you know, some of you end up 
uh, loving the past so much that you want to have that kind of conversation. We can try to set something up. But I will point to what I find to be the most puzzling and perplexing part of the passage. Try to say a little bit about what I think that it means, but I would invite you in the comments uh, to offer superior interpretations to what I have in mind, but I'll, I'll give it a start. All right. So despite the fact that we are hearing in this passage uh, that we just read about the peak of primordial life or what is possible for Buck under the law of club and fang, London mentions that parallel experiences are available to the artist and to the soldier. Why does London make this connection? In doing so, he massively complicates the dichotomy between civilized life and barbaric life. Now, we might more easily understand how the soldier might have access to experiencing the peak of primordial or wild life. In the din of battle, the soldier is responsible for securing his and his friend's safety through physical contestation that may end in his violent death or in the violent death of his enemies. This experience is difficult to fully comprehend for the civilized person like myself, whose very few and very minor scrapes can't begin to compare. The soldier in this situation finds out who he really is. Is he willing to die performing his duty? Is he capable of winning glory for his people? And while we might say that battle imposes many constraints on its combatants, these combatants are also more free to express their violent capacities. As modern civilized people, we are conditioned to abhor war, and wish for its permanent dissolution from the planet. And this may lead us to forget about the warrior as a human archetype, but not only archetype. We lose sight of the warrior as a truly admirable psychological human type that protects civilization and ensures its continuation. In a sense, we might say that civilization conditions us into forgetting the harshness that is required to secure and maintain the goods that civilization at its peak alone can bring. Now, this is turning into a bit of a tangent, but you can probably see how the warrior or soldier has some kind of access to enjoying the strife and violence that lies at the heart of the wild, and therefore the potential to master that strife or show oneself equal to it. Now, what about the artist? This is much more difficult to explain, or at any rate, it's more difficult for me to explain. So how then can we say that the artist has the experience of Buck and of the soldier? Why on earth does London compare the artist to them? Um, I assume that London is a careful author um, and wouldn't make this comparison if there wasn't something to learn from it. So we have to figure out what is it that we have to learn from this. Here's a very brief, very provisional response um, to the difficult question. The artist, like the soldier, is responding to a force outside of him telling him what to do. Um, now, especially in the artist's case, it might be the muses, which is to say divine inspiration, which guide his thinking or what he produces, or it could be some kind of communion with nature. So on one hand, the artist is told what to do from an external source to him. Although it's an external source, maybe that's also part of him or within him as well. It's pretty complicated, I suppose. But the artist is also giving shape and order to the world, something the soldier is also doing. You can think of a sculptor, or you could think of a blank canvas, which is given order where none existed before. To add a little bit to this, the external force that visits the artist who is receptive to it, who has the ears to hear, allows him to see things that others cannot. 
um, in the same way that maybe Buck somehow has access to the womb of time. Buck finds a way to hear and to feel what his ancestors have felt, and he knows that they're feeling these things with him. But somehow he's connected to this wave of being as it is described. And somehow maybe too, the artist gains some kind of communion or access to the womb of time or the wave of being. And it's this that allows the artist to create something that is beautiful simply and not just beautiful in its own time and place or something that can be viscerally seen and experienced um, when a human just looks at it that you don't need to have some kind of artistic theory to understand the beautiful, the most beautiful and the highest art. Um, but it's because you too, um, if you have the eyes and ears to hear are connected somehow to nature and the totality of being. And, um, you while not being able to produce the art, still know it when you see it in a kind of intuitive and visceral way. I don't know. This might all be a bunch of gibberish, uh, and there must be a better way to put all this. So I would invite you, uh, dear listener, to put a better spin on this or to interpret this better to figure out what do Buck, the soldier, and the artist all have in common? Okay. So we have some sense of the kind of education that Buck received or the disposition that he now has. So let's turn to part three of the lecture, where we think about if it's possible to synthesize the virtues of the wild and the virtues of civilization, but we also see what civilization, or catch a sort of metaphorical glimpse of what civilization might look like at its peak in the form of the man, John Thornton, who becomes Buck's owner. All right. So with those speculative thoughts on art and the warrior um, from what is probably the greatest passage in the book... Let's turn to a summary of a few events to help prepare us to understand Buck's final owner, John Thornton, along with his subsequent, or that is to say, Buck's subsequent full return to the wild. Buck's first owners out in the wild are Francois and Perrault. They are hard, stern, and ever willing to use clubs and whips to extract obedience and performance from their dogs. They're highly competent at traveling across the varying and frigid landscape. They're as fair as they can be with the dogs with respect to punishments for stealing and when the dogs fight each other. Their justice, if it can be called that, is not capricious or willful. They don't just punish the the dogs at random or punish all of them when one of them is at fault. They're very particular about who they administer justice to. Of course, they make mistakes because the dogs are very cunning and try to get the other dogs in trouble from time to time. But as fair as they can be under the circumstances they are in the way that they punish. And this makes Buck respect them a great deal um, in addition to their to, to their competence and their toughness and their willingness to just you know sleep out on the ice, um, things like that. Okay, so they're very competent and there's a lot more to say about them, but um, I don't want to have a four-hour uh, call of the wild lecture. All right, so the next set of owners are Hal, his wife Mercedes, and his brother Charles. Their incompetence knows no bounds. And um, it seems like they're a pretty important set of characters in the story because they show how the wild can crush incompetence and how if one doesn't have the virtues of the law of club and fang, you have no chance to do anything, or that's not the right way to put it. You will uh, lose very quickly out in the wild. Anyway, so they bring a big tent dishes, 
uh, like, you know, real glass plates and things like that, and not enough food for the dogs. Their sleigh is so overly packed that it tips over from time to time. Um, and they have to learn the hard way that they have to shed some of these burdens that they brought from civilization. Early in their travels, despite their lack of food, um, the wife, Mercedes, overfeeds the dogs out of an overabundance of concern for them. And this short-sighted care turns out to be death-dealing, um, a death-dealing cruelty when food runs short well before they reach their goal. These owners hope to bring civilization with them out into the wild. They're so dependent on certain comforts that it is unimaginable to them that they could do without them. They're unaware of, and therefore deeply unready for, the necessities imposed by the law of club and fang. They're so dependent on technology that they have lost touch with the states of soul that might let them weather their circumstance. Indeed, they argue about who has written certain poems and whose poems have been better received. In other words, they are jockeying for social status on the basis of words and how they were received by others. The value of words is dramatically reduced out in the wild. The dogs and the team begin to die one by one. Buck begins to feel life slipping away from him as well. They stop briefly to ask a man named John Thornton for advice. He tells them that they are lucky they aren't dead and not to proceed any further. Hal and Mercedes decide to press onward, and Buck refuses to budge. Hal mercilessly bludgeons Buck's stationary body, and Buck does not move an inch. John Thornton intervenes and pulls Buck off the sled team. Hal and Mercedes and their doomed team meet their death not even a mile away as ice breaks beneath them. This brings an end to a painful phase of the book. Buck had felt like he was making a partial return to his ancestors' primordial way of life under the rule of Francois and Perrault, but he was painfully shackled by the incompetence of Hal and Mercedes. Under their rule, he experienced the worst possible synth synthesis of civilization and the wild. John Thornton offers a much more stable and nourishing synthesis of the two. Here's how Buck comes to regard John, as well as the two other dogs um, with John. To Buck's surprise, these dogs manifested no jealousy toward him. They seemed to share the kindliness and largeness of John Thornton. As Buck grew stronger, they enticed him into all sorts of ridiculous games in which Thornton himself could not forbear to join. And in this fashion, Buck romped through his convalescence and into a new existence. Love, genuine, passionate love, was his for the first time. This he had never experienced at Judge Miller's uh, down in the sun-kissed Santa Clara Valley. With the judge's son hunting and tramping, it had been a working partnership. With the judge's grandsons, a sort of pompous guardianship. And with the judge himself, a stately and dignified friendship. But love that was feverish and burning that was adoration, that was madness, it had taken John Thornton to arouse. Strikingly, it is only here that Buck experiences deep love and devotion, which is to say he did not experience such love and devotion in California. Why is that? Um, one thing that we might say about this, it's a little bit speculative, but perhaps London is indicating that too much civilization, or rather decadent civilization, breeds into people a kind of softness and risk aversion that isn't compatible with falling head over heels in love. The depth of their emotions is stunted. They may lack the courage to really feel. To put this differently, 
Decadent civilization numbs and stupefies and may even lead us to become less lovable through encouraging disorder in our souls. To be clear, this is not necessarily the effect that all political communities have on their citizens, but rather decadent ones. Bucks, California may well not have been quite as decadent as all this, <clears throat> but London invites us to consider why does Buck feel love now after his experiences in the wild as opposed to when he was a comfortably domesticated dog? We might say this, now Buck has superior access to and awareness of his deepest needs and longings. He can more fully embrace them. Sometimes living in civilization can make us feel like time will go on forever and that we'll have another chance someday to do what we really want later. Buck knows that life can't be taken for granted out in the wild. Even with the above speculative critiques of decadent civilization in mind, London still is, insists to us that love like this can only be found where there is a roof and fire. In other words, love is a good available only within political life or in the city or in civilization. Some relief from necessity is an absolutely necessary prerequisite in order to feel love of this high and beautiful kind. In other words, then, as much as London wants to make attractive the primordial way of life or the way of life out in the wild, he still tells us, look, there are some beautiful and good things available only to the civilized person. He seems to be indicating Buck will not find this kind of love out in the wild when he eventually joins up with the wolves. So we might say this then, part of London's critique or criticism of civilization as such is that if or to the extent that civilization does not orient us towards the beautiful and best things in human life, it's not doing its um, due diligence. It's no longer giving us, uh, it's, it's no longer making up for the trade-offs. And now all of a sudden barbarism starts to look a lot better when civilization fails to deliver on the good things that it is supposed to provide. So let's take a look at another lengthy passage from the book in which we see a kind of what you might call a stable synthesis between civilization and the wild or the closest approximation of a healthy synthesis um, as Buck hangs out with John Thornton. Or to put this one other way, I'm now quoting from that passage. But in spite of this great love he bore John Thornton, which seemed to bespeak the soft, civilizing influence, the strain of the primitive, which the Northland had aroused in him, remained alive and active. Faithfulness and devotion, things born of fire and roof, were his, yet he retained his wildness and his wiliness. He was a thing of the wild, come in from the wild, to sit by John Thornton's fire, rather than, a <clears throat> rather than a dog of the soft Southland, stamped with the marks of generations of civilization. Because of his very great love, he could not steal from this man, but from any man in any other camp, he did not hesitate an instant, while the cunning with which he stole enabled him to escape detection. End quote. We see in this passage that a very delicate balance has been struck. Buck retains the incredible power that he's gained from his experience in the wild, and yet he's still able to enjoy the fruits that only civilization can bring. It may be that such a synthesis cannot last for long, and it may only be possible at a small scale. In other words, it seems like it would be hard to maintain this tension, 
that eventually Buck and John Thornton will slip towards one pole or the other. They'll become softer, more civilized, but potentially more refined and filled with love on one hand. Or on the other, they can go out in the wild, become fiercer, um, become more able to exercise their primordial freedom, this sort of freedom that underlies civilization. But it seems hard to stay directly in between these two things. So in a way, Buck and John Thornton get to enjoy a kind of rare and intimate experience that might not be possible for most who haven't experienced the heights of civilization and the heights of the primordial life. Um, there's a little bit more to say about this, but maybe we should turn towards the end of the book. I'll summarize just a bit of what happens in between what I've just read to you and the final page of the book. So Buck becomes famous on his travels with John. He saved John from drowning. He's willing to jump off of a cliff at John's say-so because he trusts John so much. It's a passage that almost looks like uh, that it almost looks like the biblical story uh, with Abraham and Isaac when God asks Abraham to kill Isaac. Um, and, you know, obviously Abraham's willing to do it, and then he's called back at the last second. In a sort of similar movement, John tells Buck to jump off of a cliff for no reason at all. And Buck jumps. Thankfully, John's ready for this, and he catches him. And John is sort of overawed by this loyalty, love, and obedience. He's never seen anything like it. Um, so this happens as well. This also contributes to the, to the undying fame that Buck starts to acquire. Um, Buck also injures a man at a bar who pushes John. Buck is so quick to slash at the man's throat that everybody is in awe of Buck again. Um, and then John makes what almost seems to be a foolhardy bet on Buck's strength. Other men are boasting about the strength of their dogs. And eventually John says, yeah, you know what? My dog, Buck, he could pull a thousand pound sled. And then the question starts to become, could he pull it from a dead standstill while um, some of the sled is still frozen into the ice? Um, Buck is able to do this and John wins a great deal of money um, and is able to pay back many of his debts. It was a big moment. John flushed. He was blushing. He didn't know that Buck could do this. But the, the power of love starting a fire in Buck's soul makes him capable of doing more than he might have been able to otherwise. So after seeing how powerful Buck is, John and Buck seek out new challenges since they're so easily able to manage any difficulties they encounter where they are. They strike out east for a fabled lost mine and eventually find it. John and his friends spend weeks collecting the gold while Buck makes continual trips out into the wild. In a bonus lecture only for those with the good taste to subscribe to MCC, we'll take a look at those episodes out in the wild um, and sort of take a look at whether or not Jack London's account of nobility rises to the true heights of what a Nietzschean nobility might look like. We'll just take a look at one aphorism from Nietzsche to compare this. There's obviously a lot more to say about it, but in that other subsequent lecture, we'll sort of look at the idea of what nobility is and whether or not Buck truly has a noble soul by this unbelievably high standard. So that we'll talk about next time. Um, but uh, just to say a little bit more here, one day after Buck's adventures in the forest, he returns to find that Indians have killed his beloved John. Buck temporarily loses his mind and slaughters the group that overtook John. Following this, he finally takes up 
The Call of the Wild, the title of the book. And I want to read to you this final page of this story. Just for some context, or context, the uh, Indian tribe that Buck is uh, run, comes into contact with are called the Yeehats. So that's who's being spoken of here. Quote, and here may well end the story of Buck. The years were not many when the Yeehats noted a change in the breed of timber wolves. For some were seen with splashes of brown on head and muzzle and with a rift of white centering down the chest. But, the mo but more remarkable than this, the Yeehats tell of a ghost dog that runs at the head of the pack. They are afraid of this ghost dog, for it has cunning greater than they, stealing from their camps in fierce winters, robbing their traps, slaying their dogs, and defying the bravest hunters. Nay, the tale grows worse. Hunters there, <clears throat> hunters there are who fail to return to the camp, and hunters there have been whom their tribesmen found with throats slashed cruelly open and with wolf prints about them in the snow greater than the prints of any wolf. Each fall when the Yeehats follow the movement of the moose, there is a certain valley which they never enter. And women there are who become sad when the word goes over the fire of how the evil spirit came to select that valley for an abiding place. In the summers, there is one visitor, however, to that to that valley of which the Yeehats do not know. It is a great, gloriously coated wolf, like and yet unlike all other wolves. He crosses alone from the smiling timberland and comes down into an open space among the trees. Here a yellow stream flows from rotted moosehide sacks and sinks into the ground, with long grasses growing through it and vegetable mold overrunning it and hiding its yellow from the sun. And here he muses for a time, howling once, long and mournfully, ere he departs. But he is not always alone. When the long winter nights come on, and the wolves follow their meat into the lower valleys, he may be seen running at the head of the pack, through the pale moonlight or glimmering borealis, leaping gigantic above his fellows, his great throat a bellow, as he sings a song of the younger world which is the song of the pack. So Buck still returns to pay his respects to John. He still remembers the sweetness of civilization at its peak. But we see here the primordial or barbaric life at its peak. No laws constrain Buck. He is the head of the pack. He strikes fear into the heart of all who know him. And there is no space that he fears to enter. This is a special kind of freedom that can only be won in the wild for those with not only the ears to hear the call, but also the strength and the courage. Buck reaches the full flowering of his capabilities, something most of us can only daydream about doing. And in so doing, he wins <clears throat> what at least so far has been undying fame, both within the cosmos of the book and in our lives since we still read this book. So we have to ask ourselves, what does civilization give us that compensates for what appears to be the loss of this possibility? There's much to say about this, and I won't provide a full answer. But we can say at the very least that we must do everything in our power to orient our lives and the direction of our political communities towards beauty and excellence. We must cultivate the psychic soil so that generations to come can extend this commitment to beauty and excellence. We must never forget 
that without the warrior or a certain kind of fierceness and indeed even some cruelty, we may become too soft to secure and maintain the goods that civilization brings. That without this toughness, civilization can lose sight of the very goods it was designed to procure and indeed give to us the very opposite. We are responsible for what happens to us. So it is up to us to hear the call and to act. Thanks for listening. Uh, you know, come check out the uh, future episode on nobility. And uh, I look forward to hearing any comments that you have to say. Uh, Brian Wilson out.